Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President, Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. And if you're listening on Spotify, which we just added, thank you so much. And remember to follow us. That's their word for subscribe. All right, let's get to it. So I don't usually start out a show quoting Hemingway, but here we go. Wine is one of the most civilized things in the world and one of the most natural things of the world that has been brought to the greatest perfection, and it offers a greater range for enjoyment and appreciation than possibly any other purely sensory thing. Ernie knew his wine. So sit back, grab your wine glass, get ready to talk wine business with the founders of Empathy Wines, a radical new way of selling wine with ambitious goals for you to pay less for great authentic wines delivered to your door while shining a spotlight on top tier grape growers, the unsung heroes of the wine world. The empathy is for the people who drink the wine and the farmers who grow the grapes. Their motto is empathy for the farmer, empathy for you as they try to create more of a connection between consumers and farmers in Northern California who supply the grapes for these wines. Empathy has created three distinct offerings, a killer rosé that's shipped in March, and trust me, my family blew through a case very quickly. This month, a white wine, and then a red blend that's going to ship this fall. The goal, and I would say, guys, mission accomplished so far, is to sell a $40 bottle of wine for as low as $20 bucks. So let's get pouring. Shipping included. Exactly. So joining me today are two of the three co-founders. I'm actually sitting in the chair of the third co-founder. We'll get to him in a minute, and anyone watching knows where I'm sitting. Two co-founders are with us, John Troutman. Do I call you Trouty or call you John? I mean... I go by both these days. I'm going to go John because I don't know. It just seems right. It's a formal setting. It's the formal setting today. Okay, You and my mom. Exactly. John is the COO and Nate Schroeder, the CEO. And then the third leg in the stool is, of course, the chair that I'm sitting in and the one and only Gary Vaynerchuk, who obviously, if you follow me anywhere, you know all about him. But he's a legend in the wine business world who runs one of the largest digital ad agencies in the world after he totally disrupted the wine world for well over a decade. So, guys, this show's about stories, and you guys got great ones. So why don't we start with you, John? You know, kind of give us the journey that got you to empathy. And I heard somebody say 30 seconds. Take as long as you want. I'll keep it short. I might (laughs) exceed 30, but I'll do my best. So I grew up with a family who owned restaurants, so hospitality was always in my blood. And then I fell in love with food and wines soon after, maybe even before I was of legal drinking age, but hate to admit that. Ended up going to college, following the trajectory that I was told I was supposed to follow, studied business undergrad, was always very interested in marketing, but never really knew what I wanted to do with that. Graduated during the recession of 07, 08. Graduated, had no idea what I was then going to do with that degree. Tough, tough time, man. Tough time. Yeah. Yeah. Do but it, it for you. you know, the glass half full perspective was it presented opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it actually forced me to do what I actually loved, which was go head first more into food and wine. Decided to start studying for the Court of Master Sommeliers, drinking and tasting as much wine as possible. Google searching to find that information. And then eventually came across a guy named Gary Vaynerchuk. 
went down that rabbit hole. It's like, who is this crazy guy in New Jersey who every day films himself tasting three different wines? In Springfield, New Jersey, my hometown. Shout out to Springfield. <laughs> yep. And eventually, after a couple cold calls between emails and tweets, got his attention, met up with him at the Boston Wine Expo, made my pitch to come and work for him, eventually landed what was to start an internship at a wine social network called Corked that he had just started. Was with that company for just shy of a year and a half, maybe, before we eventually divested the business. I spent a lot of time with Gary on his personal brand and then later VaynerMedia mm -hmm. before present day, where I kind of broke off and started this new venture. Great, great. And we are sitting in the offices, by the way, for those not watching, of VaynerMedia. I'm actually sitting in Gary's office. A shout out to Gary, who I believe is in Sweden today. Somewhere in Europe. Somewhere in Europe. He's, he might be in the air, who knows, but appreciate the opportunity. All right, man. Yeah. Tell us about it, Nate. So my name's Nate Schroeder. My story's yeah. not too dissimilar from John's. And by the way, I was wrong. You are not a solid seven. It looks to me like you're creeping up to a nine. I'm creeping up to a nine now? Yeah, yeah. yeah, Mitch called me a solid seven before yeah. this interview started. Yeah. I thought it was about my appearance, but it was actually the volume. So yeah, not too dissimilar from John's. I was interested in wine at an early age. My best friend's family, shout out to the Beerlings back in Arizona, were very interested in wine. You know, we pop some bottles during dinner, and I got kind of just very interested about wine and wine culture. Went to Europe with them, and it just kind of evolved from there. Kind of similarly, saw Gary on Wine Library TV, sent him an email saying, hey, I want to intern for you. I was a sophomore in college at the time. Yeah, this is such a lesson if you're, you know, in school or you're a parent. And just, you know, people give their kids some of the dumbest advice. Trust me, as a parent, I know. Just go for it. I mean, yeah, I that's mean, exactly what both of you did. Yeah, I mean, the worst thing that happens is he is says no. no. Right, who cares? Who cares? And then I you still send have another a, email. I still have a, a box I showed my son recently, who's 26, who's working in D.C., of all the radio stations that rejected me when I first got into radio. And I keep that. That motivates me a lot. Yeah, and so I got lucky enough. I think Matt Sidimer, who was Gary's assistant at the time, kind of set up the whole internship. Gary responded and just said yes, and I had no idea what to do with that. So I moved out to Springfield, New Jersey. I stayed in the dorms at Seton Hall All right. in West Orange. Took two buses to the internship every day. Two Gee, my mom there, is an extra room. Back. I would have rented it to I, you. If, if I would, if I known. It's a tough commute going five miles on two buses. There you go. And then kind of just followed Gary throughout his career. I interned for Corked where I met John. John was my manager there. And kind of just followed Gary's career. Went into VaynerMedia and worked at Vayner full-time in different capacities for about eight years before starting this. That's great. So you guys are focused on supporting growers who produce top-quality grapes. So let's talk about that first. Why focus on supporting them through empathy? What are some of the challenges that these farmers are going through that kind of led right into the core of what you guys you know, are created here? Yeah, so when we set out and at the earliest stages of the project and we were deciding where we were going to make our wine and where we were going to source the grapes from, it immediately became really clear that we weren't going to be working with growers in Napa Valley or the Sonoma Coast or kind of these flagship wine regions that everybody knows. And the reason being, we weren't going to be able to deliver the value to the price ratio for right. the consumer that we were so focused on. And so we immediately went to the surrounding regions of Northern California. There are plenty of them. Plenty of them nice. where there are some great growers who are selling great grapes and amazing fruit for pennies on the dollar and of near equal quality to a lot of the people in some of those bigger name regions. Right. And so for us, it, 
presented an opportunity to one, be able to produce a really affordable bottle of wine, but equally as important to be able to shine a spotlight on some of those people that nobody really knows about or very few at this point. Exactly. And that the masses are getting to see what's going on and, and how huge an industry it is but so small it is in, in some of those giant labels that kind of conquer everything. So that's very cool. So working with Gary, you guys have pitched the wine as cutting out the middleman. So doing direct to consumer, kind of like a Warby Parker, I guess, has done in the eyeglass world. So is this DTC trend growing in the wine world or are you guys, you know, really kicking it off? Yeah, it's, it's definitely growing in the wine world in a couple different ways. There's definitely been some businesses and companies popping up over the past few years that have been doing more direct-to-consumer wine clubs, making and buying a lot of different wines in different varieties and having more kind of allowing customers to experience a lot of different wines. So, you know, customers could get 24 different wines throughout the year that they're kind of putting their label on and sending to customers. I think from a, a winery perspective, wineries are trying to figure out how to sell direct-to-consumer more. It's a little bit tricky because they do go through distribution. And so there's a balancing of keeping distributors and retailers happy as well as selling direct to consumer. But from a winery making their own wine and shipping wine to a consumer like we're doing, there's not too many doing it exclusively like us. That's great. So talk about your journey to Northern California. I mean, you, you obviously both spent, and, and I say Northern California, that's probably not fair because it's probably Central Valley and Mendocino and there's, there's a lot of other areas that I'm sure you hit. So you know, how, did, how did you find the vineyards and the partners that you discovered? I mean, do you guys have a, a full-time winemaker that did some of that work for you? You know, how's that work? Yeah. A lot of it came through relationships as well as great partners. So as we started the project and getting it underway, it involved a lot of different phone calls to people previously that we knew in the industry and asking around. And then we have an amazing partner name of John Wilkinson of Binda Bottle. So shout out to John, who's really been a Sherpa for us in terms of who's growing grapefruit in these regions that we wanted to focus on. And then ultimately helping make introductions and helping us navigate who to work with, where to source that fruit, and then ultimately how to turn that those grapes into great wine. Yeah, and then we have a full-time winemaker pretty much dedicated to this project who works out of the Binda Bottle facility. It was pretty serendipitous too. We, we did a competitive set tasting of like 60, 80 different wines across the rosé, white, and the red to kind of stylistically talk about what we wanted to make. And the red wine that we honed in on, which we think is going to be phenomenal, you know, especially for that $20 price, the one wine that we kind of honed in on that was stylistically similar, they hired at Binda Bottle like two weeks prior. <laughs> so it was really serendipitous. And he's been really great across all three wines. So what was the thought process on rosé, white, and red blends? Yeah, so... To start. Yeah, yeah. to start. Right. And I think that's a great point. And you're, this is our first vintage. Right. So for us, we didn't want to come out of the gate and producing 10, 20, 25 different wines, like a lot of wineries sometimes do. For us, it's how do we produce the very best wine that we can in the three primary categories in year one, get ourselves established, and then see how it goes from there. I will say, and I don't want to get too kind of wine nerdy, but the approach we've taken with all three wines is a blend, which is really intentional. For us, that blend might slightly be tweaked year over year, mm -hmm. with the idea being it gives us flexibility. If you're making a, you know one type of grape from one vineyard, 
every year, you're kind of beholden to mother nature because right. it really is an agricultural good. For us, by sourcing from different vineyards and by having different grape varieties in there, depending on how the year goes, it gives us a little wiggle room to yeah. be able to, to make the best possible end product for the yeah. consumer. Yeah, I think we want it to be, I mean, with everything that we've done, we want it to be a customer-centric brand, right. you know, give us flexibility year over year to deliver on that. You know, and there's hundreds of types of grapes out there, and I'm a little bit curious about this, that there's there's just a few types of wines that are consumed by most consumers at the end of the day. It's Cab, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Merlots. Why are these customers, consumers, so to speak, only drinking those few types of grapes or blends? Is it because they're just unaware of these other, you know, vineyards and farmers? You know, it's a, it's a huge question to unpack, but I mm-hmm. think at the highest of levels, the reason being that each grape has built its own respective brand. Right. So Chardonnay at this point is a brand name. Sauvignon Blanc has become a bigger and bigger brand name. And so as those brand names have grown, the wineries have kind of capitalized on that. And then you get a Paul Giamatti who just knocks out Merlot and that's it. That's, right? that's exactly I don't think it. I've had a Merlot since Sideways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was damaging to the Merlot brand. And it's from a business perspective, it's fascinating because you've watched in that, you know, when did that movie come out? 20 oh, years ago at this been point. A while, yeah. Across California, people are ripping Merlot yeah. vines out of the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and people want to plant what they can get the highest price for. That's, so it's brand. That's that's really incredible. Yeah. You know. So let's talk about working with a guy like Gary. So obviously a genius, clearly has one of the most unique style of finding and mentoring talent. And as someone who's been involved with VaynerMedia pretty much from day one, I've seen that. And in our previous episode, we talked about that with Claude Silver and also James Orsini. What kind of mentorship and coaching is he providing in this business for you? Or is it more of a modeling kind of style? I mean, Nate, you know, I met you years ago at Wine Library when, you know, you were tagging the wines. I mean, you, you know, so you guys Those go. Those were the days. You go, exactly. You go way back. So what, what's the style? Yeah, I'd say it, it evolves over time. I mean, I've been, I started interning for Gary 10 years ago, and then I started full-time with him seven or eight years ago. And so, I mean, it's a fairly hands-off approach mm-hmm. in terms of kind of developing talent and creating talent. A lot of it is learning by osmosis and just kind of being around him, being in his world, seeing, you know, I had the fortunate circumstance to kind of see every single thing that was going on, whether it was good, whether it was bad, and then being able to see the decisions that were made. And so for me, it was seeing what's the problem or what's going good and how were those things handled and being like, you know, how do we get from A to B and just kind of deducing that on my own. And so, you know, we can ask questions as we go in this wine business. Again, we've worked with him for so long that we kind of know when we need him. Right. I think, and, and that's probably the biggest, you know, plus of the business itself is that you guys all know each other so well. I mean, there's, right. you know, it's not like any secrets here, you know, you can be very honest with each other. Yes. And, you know, communication with Gary is always like the biggest thing and he's so busy. I think that's probably the thing that's been the most challenging for us is that we know how busy he is. Right. And so we're pretty empathetic yeah. <laughs> to, to how busy he is. And yeah. so we don't want to be intrusive on that. And but it's so, also the other side of that is it's giving you a lot of really strong decision-making opportunities. Mm-hmm. And obviously you want all of them are going to work, not all, but you know you have that opportunity to do that. And many businesses, you know, when you've got the typical corporate structure of layer after layer after layer after layer, that's not what's happening here. Right. And so for us, it was learning the right way to communicate with him in this project. And so it's been cool because he's allowed us to kind of run the business from a day-to-day standpoint. But there's obviously big decisions and bigger things that we bring him in on. Mm -hmm. 
My brother, Jeff, who you know, John, used to work for Noma Cork, which sells about 2 billion corks a year. In fact, actually, Gary spoke at one of his conferences, you know, close to eight or nine years ago in Napa, which I actually was at. How did you guys pick the type of cork or closure for the wine? I mean, did you even have a conversation about screw caps or you know, obviously those that aren't watching that haven't had the opportunity and you will at the end of the show, because I'm going to tell you how to get it to see these corks. I mean, they're literally like fortune cookie messages on each one of them. So talk about the corking decision. Yeah. What seems like it should be such a simplistic and straightforward thing, like how do you close your wine, right. is just so complex, right? There's everything from taking the consumer perception into account. You know, a lot of consumers still perceive screw caps as being inferior or cheapening to the wine that they're purchasing. Then there's ultimately the quality of the closure itself, right? How do you make sure it's actually protecting the wine in the bottle? And then on top of that, it's pricing, right? Like it's a business decision too of how much does this actual closure cost and how does that impact my bottom line for the wine? So across all three of those factors, a lot of deliberation and decision-making went into it. In year one, we ended up going with a traditional cork closure. We're doing some cool mm -hmm. stuff on the bottles. That's which great. You can see if, if you buy the wine, you'll yep. be able to check it out. <laughs> but for us, it's also, I think, thinking about testing and learning and always thinking about the future. Just because we're doing it this way this year, doesn't mean that's what we're always going to do. People think these decisions forward. are, you know, are just sort of made in a vacuum, but they're not. They're obviously there was a lot of discussion yeah. and a lot of testing. Yeah, and we're, I mean, we're a direct to consumer brand. A lot of our customers are pretty internet savvy and, and good at social, and so a lot of our design and product kind of development was centered around, you know, what will look good on Instagram when it gets to your doorstep. What's right. that unboxing experience like? You know, when the wine is delivered, that's our customer's first experience with our brand, really. And so we wanted to make that experience a really positive one right off the bat because they're not looking at this on a shelf and putting it in their cart. You know, they're getting this to their doorstep. Yeah, I mean, your marketing, I mean, everything that you post is a visual masterpiece. I mean, it's beautiful and, and the colors of the wine and the sunsets and everything that, that I see. I mean, that's important. Listen, that's, you're going direct to the consumer. So you want, you want to show them the best. So this may be a little bit marketing nerdy, but talk about some of the trend lines in wine consumption amongst different age groups. So who's drinking more wine by volume and value? Would you say it's millennials, baby boomers? What are you finding there? And what are your initial thoughts in the sale so far? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And it's one that everybody from a you know an industry perspective is talking about, right? Is consumption among millennials for wine is, is through the roof. And so everybody from all the big wine conglomerates to the small independent wineries is starting to think about how do I become more and more attractive and win over that you know 25 to 40 year old consumer right at the same token at the you know, especially at the more premium end a lot of the people driving the market are still the a slightly older generation and so you can't totally ignore those people I think for us when it comes to targeting one specific demo, we haven't necessarily honed in on who that person is yet. Instead, mm -hmm. we're starting with how do we make a really great product that's going to have broad appeal? Right. And then from there, we can ultimately cater to different segments. Right, which I think makes sense. And you're also dealing, you know, in the wine industry, which is somewhat challenged like other industries. So if you think about all the other beverage categories that are really hot right now, you've got, you know, craft beer and bourbon. So how does that fit in, you know, to what you're seeing for finding the right audience or the right folks that are interested? You know, one really interesting trend that I think we're going to be watching closely, and it's not a trend we necessarily see going away anytime soon, 
is canned wine. I was just going to ask you about that because most wine tradition is anchored in bottles, but we've, you know, you're seeing canned wine and box wine. And yeah, and I think, I think the wine industry kind of took a nod from craft beer and right. something that they did so well, which was you can still put a really premium product inside of a can. Right. It's not going to denigrate or devalue the quality of the product inside it. And it also presents an opportunity for people to drink it on different occasions. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you can drink wine at a picnic. It right. becomes easier than carrying a heavy bottle around. Right. You can drink it on the beach. You can drink it at a concert. These are all what marketers would call usage occasions that right. didn't exist for wine before, which presents a huge sales opportunity. I would think so. I mean, you're seeing more and more of it. You're not, yeah, you definitely are seeing it in the craft beer business. Bourbon, maybe not as much, but certainly I'm kind of a bourbon guy myself and having biked the bourbon trail uh, down in Kentucky a few years ago and really getting to know kind of the same story as, as it is with wine and some of the bourbons that are my favorites are not the big name ones and off the side of the road and then they begin a blend and like Widow Jane, which is in New York, you know, is a great example of somebody doing something kind of unique in that world. So, all right, so let's talk about how it's going. So you started with rosé, all right, and, you know, hit strong with that. Now the white is out. Tell us about the white because I haven't tasted it yet. I can't wait. You know, stylistically, it is a fairly similar to the rosé in terms of the balance of acidity and sweetness. Both of the wines are not aromatically challenged at all. You'll mm -hmm. get that really nice bouquet on the nose. The blend is majority Chardonnay and Chenin Blanc. And then mixed in there is some Verdejo, Vermentino, Albarino, and Grenache Blanc. Mm, Grenache Blanc. So kind of a, a field blend, if you will, of grapes. But it has a really good acidity. It has this kind of pineapple, pear, lemon, good citrus coming through. John, how would you? Yeah, nice and like, cold. I mean, that's the goal with the white, just like the rosé. You know, I think in general, people tend to drink their wines a little too cold. White and rosé, they're intended to be really chilled. Right. But it doesn't need to be absolutely freezing cold out of the refrigerator. It'll it'll develop in the glass too. That's true. It does develop in the glass. And someone actually that I'd given a bottle of rosé I said, so what do you think? And this woman's very clever. She said, it's a symphony in my mouth. I said, what, 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 <laughs> no. what does that mean? And she we'll put says, that on the website. Know, oh, yeah. I mean, she said that, you know, there's just so many things going on. And I think she said watermelon and just talking about all of these different, you know, aromas and, you know, just, I thought put it really beautifully. It's interesting. And, and the red, can you give us a hint of what we're going to see in the fall? Yeah, we were just out there last week blending the red, which is super exciting. What's that like? When you say blending the red, what's your experience in doing that? Or just Yeah, it's something that's kind of new to me. You know, having we both worked in wine for a while, but it's not a process I'd gone through a ton. Just tasting all the different components and the blocks of grapes from certain parcels of the vineyard. Are you out in the vineyard doing it? Or are you indoors or is it? It's in a very almost like a laboratory type setting. Sure. So you're tasting lots of different finished wines mm -hmm. to ultimately figure out how do we get the perfect blend between all these different grape types and vineyard blocks where the grapes are sourced from? We use the word symphony. It's literally like, how do I pick each proper note that's right. ultimately going to work together properly to make, make a great song? Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, because you guys and Gary too have been in the wine industry for so long, your palate is pretty sophisticated and knows what to look for. And obviously you have a winemaker who just this is how they live. So one of the other interesting things about your business is you're offering a concierge service, which I'm very proud to have been one of the first people to sign up for. And I'm really excited about that. So why don't you talk about that a little bit before we close? 
Cool. Yeah. So anyone that subscribes to our top level of membership, which is a case of each of our wines, so a case of the rosé, a case of the white, a case of the red, get access to our Club Empathy. And with Club Empathy, you get kind of this on-demand wine concierge. So you'll get a private phone number that you can text any and all of your wine questions. So if you're having a party on the weekend and you're having a barbecue and you want to know what wines to pair with the hot dogs you're making, you can text us and we'll get back to you with some recommendations. And if you're in a specific city, we'll like look up the store for you and go to this store and buy this wine. One of the other cool things that we're doing with the program is if you're going to wine country, so if you're going to Napa, Sonoma, a few other regions around the country, we'll set you up with some wineries and get some comp tastings or free tastings, which can kind of pay for itself. Sure. We've had people use it and save four or five hundred dollars on going to Napa Valley for a weekend. What else do we do with the club program? Yeah. I mean, at the highest level, we kind of, and this will resonate, I think, with your audience. You know, we were looking at folks like the American Expresses of the world with their black card and platinum card services, or even, you know, at this point, Chase with their Sapphire program. And it was providing experiences and access and benefits in a membership style model for their top customers, right? At the end of the day, it's, we wanna reward you and provide you value that you can't get anywhere else. And so that's kind of where we started from. And then we worked backwards and said, what is it that wine lovers and even wine drinkers in general don't currently have or what problems do they have and how do we solve that for them? And so that's pretty much where all those benefits came from. It was, they want VIP treatment when they're traveling to different wine regions. Mm -hmm. They want help selecting a wine even if it isn't one of ours and then we kind of like crafted services well, around it, it that. clearly is terrific and exciting and if anybody wants to get the wine we're going to link directly obviously to empathywines.com that that's really kind of the best way to go at it you can get the three packs correct yep. as well as get the concierge service so guys nate john thank you so much for taking the time to share the empathy story today and, and i hope people you really learned something that you know, it's not just the typical wine that you see in your store. There's actually a lot of people out there throughout, not just California, but really all over the world, these farmers that deserve to be highlighted this way and give you the empathy, which is just means so many things to so many people to really get involved and join. So I'm very pumped to drink the white blend tonight. And I want to thank Resonate Recording again for post-production. Alex, who's taking care of some of our video here. And remember, if you're listening on Spotify, please follow the show so you get each episode delivered to you weekly. And remember, when it comes to saving for anything, especially wine, pay yourself first. Have a great week. 